white people get really defensive. They feel like it's coming from all sides of them. They feel like they can't say anything without being racist. Welcome to episode 44 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And yeah, it's, it's just us today That's because it. we have decided based on yesterday, uh, our, sorry, based on our last episode that we are canceling white men. So uh, we've canceled Rory. We canceled Rory. He's out. <laughs> sorry. No <laughs> <laughs> more Rory. <laughs> just kidding. Here's Rory. <laughs> I'm Rory. I'm still here. <laughs> oh, Rory, our our, uh, our token white man. <laughs> I am happy to be your token white man. <laughs> as far as token white men go, that you're a pretty good one, I think. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> Very well. We shall uncancel you and you, you shall join us again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so... This is, uh, I can't even remember what day it is of our lockdown, shutdown, slash stay at home. I don't know what all these words mean anymore. (laughs) No, it's funny. I was having a conversation this morning and I can't figure out how old I am or how old my dog is because we have that whole lost year. That's what I'm calling it. It's a lost year. So like, uh, I think my dog is a, a year younger than what she actually is because, uh, I can't remember the last year. (laughs) I haven't had quite that same experience of time displacement, but I agree. I can't even count the days of how much lockdown we've had or how long it's been since this all started to affect our lives. Who knows? But (laughs) I don't know. I've given up on hope. I don't know. We should just not have hope anymore because every time we get a little bit of hope, we start opening up a little bit. I make an appointment for my hair to get cut, and then everything gets canceled, and I will never get, get a my little bit of hope ever again. Then the next Christmas or Easter rolls around, and you're out of luck. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's just worse for us because uh, we're next to the U.S., and every day they just have so many more people being vaccinated and so many more people having fun, <laughs> getting back to normal, while and talking... we are still waiting. Yeah, they're talking about stockpiling 100,000 or 100 million vaccines before they give any to anyone else. They are awful. <laughs> they need to share those vaccines. Hoarders. Hoard them. <laughs> what are you doing hoarding but vaccines? I, to be honest, I don't blame them. They have all the manufacturing. They definitely will want to like manufacture or enough for their citizens first. Because in reality, I feel like politically for them... It would never fly if they were to say, oh, we, we're going to share our vaccines instead of vaccinating our population. It would, You know the Americans. They're very self-centered. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know, but I just, think it's, I just think it's a shame that they have that perspective. It's, it's the American way. It's the American <laughs> way. But I'm hoping once they have access capacity, they will give us those vaccines. Or, better yet, since they aren't planning on using the AstraZeneca or Johnson Johnson vaccine anytime soon, just give it to us. Give us the millions yeah. of doses that you have stockpiled right now that are doing nothing. Before they expire, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Part of me thinks that there might actually be nations out there who need any excess supply the States has a lot more than Canada does. Like there are hotbed nations that are breeding new variants just because it's transmitting so quickly. I would say probably the wor- the worst one is Brazil, but it's also uh, now definitely Brazil. We, we need to take care of them, but at the same time, they also have a leader that is completely incompetent. <laughs> that is exactly like Trump. <laughs> yeah, and believes that you know, oh, it's just a common cold, so nothing's locked down, and we're just gonna let. <laughs> The virus run through the population. Herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Definitely a humane solution. Yeah. But anyways, that's the, the current update. Nothing has changed other than <laughs> we're still <laughs> waiting to get out of this lockdown. We're still waiting to be vaccinated. But um, so instead of talking about the vaccine today or COVID, we'll talk about something else that's impacting our world. It's, it's white fragility. So. Uh, tell us a little more, Sherry. What is white fragility? 
so white fragility is a term that was coined by uh, Robin D'Angelo. And um, it's sort of like how when white people are confronted with a racist ideology, uh, they have a reaction to it, which is a negative reaction. So they might react um, with dismissiveness or anger or um, they might be defensive. Um, and so that is white fragility is essentially white people's reaction when confronted with racism. And so there's, uh, according to Robin, there's a few um, common phrases that white people use when they are, I guess, enacting white fragility. Uh, so one of those phrases is, I have a black friend slash family member, so I'm not racist. Another one is racism ended with slavery. And the last one is I am colorblind. Uh, sorry, I am colorblind, so I'm not racist. Um, and I think these are really common. Like these are ones that I have heard. I don't know mm -hmm. about YouTube, but um, I've definitely heard them sort of talked about, especially um, when it comes to romantic relationships. People sometimes say like, oh, I don't see race. So I'm definitely fine to date this other race because I don't see race. And I think that's really dismissive of uh, what Black people, what Indigenous um, people of color experience uh, when you say that you don't see their color and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think it's something that we really learned maybe in the 90s going to school is like, the whole colorblind idea of not seeing race, seeing people for who they are. Uh, I don't know if you two had that experience in school as well. I think yeah, maybe. I, mean, I, I remember in school, the uh, multicultural lessons around, mm -hmm. um, you know, not seeing race, but it's one of those, it's odd because you're, you're taught not to see race, but, it's there. Like when you look at a person, you can see their race. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. not like, um, you know, in reality, we're not colorblind. I mean, oh, most of us aren't. Some people are, but. But um, even if you're colorblind, like, you would like see actual, the. Like actual color. Yeah. You yeah. would see the differences in, in like the shading though. In the shades, so yeah. Even if you were colorblind, you would still see color essentially or or yeah. skin color or um, yeah you would see the race right i mean yeah, you would yeah, be able yeah. to identify mm -hmm. so it's um yeah it, it's just odd that uh to to state that you don't see color when in reality you do you, yeah. it, it's it's obvious i think mm -hmm. uh, and, you don't, and people don't acknowledge that i think the people who came up with the whole colorblind thing their hearts probably were in the right place if the idea is don't treat people different according to what you're seeing on their skin. But it so quickly became ignoring what's happening to people of different colors, which is very problematic. Yeah, no, I think it came from a really good place. Absolutely. That, um, you know, people wanted to teach children not to treat people differently based on their skin color, but it sort of negated the the struggles that that those races go through. And so uh, I think that we've kind of course corrected a little bit over the years uh, to how we are now in our education system, where we actually acknowledge, um, you know, past indiscretions from, you know, our colonizers and uh, Canadian government and and all of those things that we have done as a country to um, continue on with with some of these some of these uh, systems that really enable racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So white fragility also has to do with people not responding uh, properly when they are called out. So uh, instead of responding with um, gratitude. So saying, you know, thank you for letting me know this, uh, and informing me, I won't do it again. People then put up a wall and get defensive, um, and sort of deny it. And, and that's where the issue lies, because I think that, you know, I can speak for myself. I'm, I'm a white woman. 
as as a white woman who grew up in a Western culture, I think that I've learned a lot of these racist systems and never really had to question them before because it was never never an issue for me, never a challenge or a struggle for me. I never experienced, you know, um, job discrimination based on the fact that my name sounded like a white name versus, you know, uh, somebody from a different culture. So I think, you know, it, it can be really hard for people to confront this. And I know, at least with my parents' generation, I see this a lot, where they really struggle to say, um, if so, if somebody is racist, because we kind of see racism as this black and white. So if you are racist, then you're a bad person. And so by saying, you know, a lot of us hold these racist ideologies without even knowing it, and we don't believe ourselves to be bad people, and we're not bad people, but we do often hold these racist ideologies. And so instead of getting all defensive and saying, I'm not a racist, I'm not a bad person, maybe we need to kind of take a step back and really um, acknowledge that there are these systems that are involved that we have to contend with as white people. Mm-hmm. And also there's a lot of unconscious bias that you just might not recognize. Um, and it, this goes for uh, race. It could also reply to uh, gender stereotypes as well. But if we were to just focus on kind of race, you know, there's, I mean, it's clear when people look at various studies that's been done if a uh, in the job market for example if you had identical resumes and you had one resume that had a very uh, you know white name john smith versus a foreign name the person that's named john smith gets significantly more replies uh, for the ex- for jobs, even though they have the exact same qualifications, like these studies have been done before, and it's uh, and it's just this either unconscious or maybe in some cases conscious uh, decision that uh, recruiters have made to preferentially uh, pick a person that's white sounding in order, uh, sorry, oh, pick someone that's white sounding over someone that maybe sounds like a uh, foreign person. Yeah, and it's a cycle as well because once you've picked that white person, they can excel within their job, and if you're never picking these black people or indigenous or people of color to become, you know, higher up in positions, then they are not able to then bring in people who are diverse as well. So, it gets to kind of be a cycle of, you know, almost like a boys club of of, you know, always picking the people who are similar to you and therefore never getting that diversity within within the company. Um, yeah. 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 And that goes for women as well. I mean, this is why uh, women in the workplace, uh, there's still this inequality as well. Absolutely. My wife is a dental hygienist, and um, she has a friend who is a male dental hygienist. So it does work the other way is, is kind of my story here. But uh, he found that he wasn't getting very many responses to his his resume. So then he changed his resume uh, to his first initial and then his last name. And he started getting a whole bunch of people who started calling him for for interviews and stuff like that. So like we have these um, unconscious biases sometimes in what we expect from people uh, who are, you know, who are inhabiting the jobs that we are you know, putting, um, uh, putting out there. So, you know, these biases do happen, even though they are unconscious and none of us, I'm sure would want to exclude women or exclude people of color from, uh, the workplace, but it, it does happen just sort of unconsciously. And it, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it does mean you need to really examine your practices. Yeah. And I think, you know, with, this concept of white fragility, when people get offended, I mean, you, you hear, you already mentioned, you know, those common uh, replies in terms of, oh, I've black friends, etc. But it, it's, it's very dismissive, right, of the, the issue. And also, um, kind of, per, at least, you're, you're set, you set yourself into a defensive mode, where you're maybe unwilling to actually acknowledge or actually learn from maybe the uh, 
the situation or if someone were to call you out on potentially something that was dis- discriminatory or or uh, rooted in racism? I think uh, D'Angelo actually points that out in her book that all these moves toward outward displays of emotion like anger, fear, and guilt and engaging in behavior like argumentation and silence and leaving the stress-inducing situation, they're all behaviors that uh, function to reinstate the white racial equilibrium. You know, push it away, push it aside, and then get back to the normal status quo of white supremacist thought. Yeah, and it is so pervasive that it's hard, you know, I feel like with white fragility, people feel like they're being confronted all the time, right? Um, Mm -hmm. There was recently another black man, black young young black man who was uh, killed at a police stop in uh, the the U.S. And um, I went over to my mother in law's house uh, to have dinner with her, and she started talking about this. And she said, um, "Before you listen to this on the news, this is what happened." Kind of like making a case for the the police officer and saying, and, and it seemed almost like she was. Uh, trying to tell us, like, you know, it wasn't racist. Don't think it was racist. Don't listen to what they tell you. Everything's racist (laughs) now kind of thing. But it's because, like, and I think this, you know, I I feel bad for saying this about, you know, the the baby boomer generation, but I think they, they never really had to confront racism like our generation does. And I think our generation might be a little bit more open to um, looking at the racism in a systemic way. Um, and so we're hearing a lot more about it because now we're kind of, um, you know, looking at these structures more. And so the older generation who never had to confront this feels like it's everywhere that everyone's saying everything is racist and you can't do anything that's not racist anymore. Um, so I, so they get really defensive and really, you know, uh, feel like they're being attacked because it's coming from all sides. But it's also because now we have cameras that are actually mm. uh, creating the visibility of all these racist structures, um, racist uh, events that have always existed, like things like you know random stopping of young black uh, men that has happened for you know forever, and but it's just that we never. Or I should say, maybe not, other people outside of the black community didn't really see this because it wasn't visible in their lives. Uh, white people didn't have to experience being stopped because you had a air freshener hanging in your car. Um, you didn't have, uh, in in you know the last two cases, you, uh, you didn't have someone who shot you instead of being tased and you didn't Mm -hmm. uh there was a young 13 year old uh black uh, teenager who was shot while complying with the officer's instructions so the officer uh told him to raise his hands as he rose his hand he was shot Mm -hmm. like you know it's one of those like what is the black community supposed to do you follow you follow the instructions of a police officer you still get shot you don't comply, you still get shot. So what what are they to do? Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of it also is that, you know, white people used to control the narrative on this um, in terms of media. And now with social media, we have a lot more diverse voices that are able to speak up a bit louder. And I think that's also part of why. So not only like cameras and stuff, but also because, you know, black people, indigenous um, various people of color are able to speak up louder than they could before. So the media is not necessarily driven by that same white narrative that we always see. Because the white narrative would say, this guy got um, shot by the police because he wasn't complying. Yeah, or he right. behaved in a threatening manner or something, made the police yeah. officer feel intimidated. He had no mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then, you know, there's... Now that we have more cameras, there are so many videos of Karens that mm. clearly are, you know, violating the laws. But you don't see 
Karens being shot. (laughs) (laughs) How many Karens showed up to that uh, insurrection on the Capitol and were not shot? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that essentially is what white fragility is. Um, And, and so white people get really defensive. They feel like it's coming from all sides of them. They feel like they can't say anything without being racist Uh, And they're not willing to then sort of dissect their feelings around it and dissect, you know, the actual reality of what is racist and how pervasive it is in our society. I would add to that that they're they're making it all about them. When Mm -hmm. a white person hears about racism, it suddenly becomes an issue of how that makes them feel guilty and, and unappreciated and like they're being attacked as opposed to actually saying, hey, there's a systemic problem out there that needs to be addressed. These people Mm -hmm. are suffering. I need to listen to their voices. No, it becomes all about the fragile white persona that needs to be soothed and reassured that it's doing everything correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was another point by D'Angelo of uh, how it this whole issue then gets recentered onto the white perspective again. Mm-hmm. So we still like, we really need to hear these um, black indigenous people of color voices instead of recentering it again onto the white person, how the white person feels and, and, and their perspective for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I was going to um, also mention there, there is an author, uh, John MacArthur. Uh, he's a American linguist and associate professor of uh, English. Uh, he actually wrote an article that kind of count, basically gave a, a different opinion on D'Angelo's book on white fragility. He, he his perspective was it was actually maybe kind of condes- condescending uh, hmm. to black people. Um, I'm I'm not sure. Well, I'll I'll just kind of share his perspective, and maybe uh, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts around it. But it, he he kind of went to, wrote this article to kind of talk about um, uh, D'Angelo's book, but also stated that the the, the problem with the book is it, it's almost like a prayer book for white people. It's basically a to a, a tool to uh, just essentially help uh, rich entitled white people to feel better about themselves uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day. And and I, I think um, his, his critique was just around the fact that the book is kind of framed in terms of, you know, if you're white, uh, you will never succeed in finishing the work that she demands of you as a white person. And essentially, uh, it's a lifelong work and you will die racist. Uh, <laughs> I think that's to summarize kind of his critique. That's essentially what he's trying to land at. It's just a a book that kind of is written to certain kind of educated white readers to feel better about themselves, and yeah, doesn't really help kind of address the overall issue. Hmm. That actually, uh, it is a part of what I had prepared about um, moving conversation in a constructive direction is I was going to, if I were to find fault in Dr. D'Angelo's book, as I understand it, having not read it, just piecing things together from under other media that discuss it, is that she takes the time to worry about labeling white people racist. That that, it kind of opens the door to allowing the privileged white male to make it a conversation about the guilt they feel and what they can do to improve the situation for themselves and moves the conversation away from actively trying to, to defund or modify the institutions and structures that are victimizing actual oppressed people. I think it's a good book though, for like an introductory for um, racism, because I think that if you go too hard on these people who are fragile white people, um, they will really get defensive and push back and they won't even hear you out. So I think there needs to be a little bit of like coaxing and bringing them in a little bit Mm -hmm. before you can actually start to do that work. So um, I can understand what you mean and that it's not um, quite as blunt as, as you think it should be. 
Um, but I think if it were, then it would really limit its audience. And I think the audience needs to be a little bit more general and open so that we can bring people in to kind of start to think about all of the systems in place that are racist in our society that they have benefited yeah. how, from. How, how do you think that, like, practically speaking, that should occur? Uh, I know I've uh, definitely heard from some people, uh, like people of color, who mentioned that, you know, it's really not their responsibility to <laughs> educate white people and to coax them along and try to, you know, bring them into the fold. You know, it's not their responsibility. Um, uh, but at the same time, you don't do it. Is it really um, kind of up to white people to kind of figure it out and bring others with them? I think if you um, consider some of the movements that are out there, you know, most notably Black Lives Matter, I would probably say the best way to go about things is just to support that movement, be a part of it and actively participate in it without overshadowing, you know, the voices of actual colored persons who are trying to get their message out there, but just to reinforce it, you know, with your participation as well. There's definitely a case to be made that black people should not be doing all of the emotional labor that's involved with uh, educating white people about racism. Um, because they are also experiencing that trauma at the same time as they are trying to educate people on that trauma. Um, it's very taxing emotionally. And so I think that there needs to be um, some onus on the white person to step up and do that education themselves. Um, so finding, I mean, the internet is full of resources for black voices, for indigenous voices, um, for all different races. And so, um, I don't think it's hard to educate yourself. Um, and I think that the onus is on us. And I think the onus really comes on to white people who are, uh, educated teaching those who are not so educated. So some things that I do is I have these discussions with my parents and with, um, people that I know to say, to say something when, when there is, um, an ideology that they're supporting that I feel is is problematic. What do you guys think about uh, you know where the line is between you know taking responsibility, feeling accountable for social change and moving things in a positive direction, and ending up being that person who at least appears to be speaking for the oppressed despite not being a member of the oppressed? Where I think is that that's line when you fall? that's when you really raise up those voices. Um, that are part of the community that that are speaking out, and you you refer people to to that. So, referring to them to books or uh, podcasts or YouTube videos about uh, and that are you know these oppressed voices that are speaking up, so that uh, it's not just coming from from the white person uh, all the time. So, I understand that that perspective. I think it's it's very effective, um, especially if you are talking to like family members to actually start that process. Because I, I think in general, just based on you know human behavior, no one likes to be called out. It's not comfortable, mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's it's significantly more effective for family members to have that type of discussion or to like start someone on that path of. Uh, realization um and you know this goes the same with like the anti-vax movement i mean it's study after study has shown the the uh easiest way to convince someone is through you know close family connections or or relationships with uh doctors like it, it's people that you know one-on-one -on -one that can help to drive change in someone's opinions and uh, I think it's it's definitely easier that way. Uh, probably the the biggest challenge is in some uh, communities. There's this like echo chamber where you know some white communities just aren't exposed to uh, people who would actually call them out or uh, or kind of uh, start that process of or start that journey on realizing uh, there are kind of racist structures 
that exists in the world. What do you think um, needs to change in order for when somebody gets called out? Like, I'm thinking possible changes in family life or school. When a person gets called out to respond instead of confrontationally and feeling defensive and wanting to mount a counterattack to actually view it as an opportunity to take some kind of collaborative approach to understanding the way that they're wrong and moving forward together. Like, how do we change from attack defense into, okay, you've brought me a perspective where I appear to be on the wrong side of this. Let's work together and move forward with a better understanding for both of us. How do we instill that into our culture? (laughs) I hear no idea, public Rory. beings work. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, we're intelligent people. We got this. <laughs> I don't know. It could start in the education system of like when when kids are young, teaching them to be uh, to think critically and be open to criticism. Um, yeah, because I feel like people get so defensive. Uh, if you call them out on something, doesn't matter what it is. Um, I remember calling people out on ableist language, like saying something is retarded, um, and um, or that's gay. Uh, I remember calling people out on those sorts of things, and I never got a positive response from. Well, I rarely mm-hmm. got a positive response from people. Or, or, um, or why don't we turn the question around in terms of? Can you think of a time when someone called you out? or something and you changed your mind i'm sure it's happened well i think that like a lot of it is i mean you could probably think of it in terms of you know a relationship or something like that like there are times in my relationship with my wife where i say this thing that you did hurt me or you said hurt me um uh let's maybe change that in the future and and really talking about yourself and how you feel about it um, using those I messages, I feel blank when you do blank, um, I think really helps because you're, you're then talking to a person that you care about, um, and, and they can really internalize that and say, Hey, I don't want to hurt this person that I care about. And so maybe I can make this change. Yeah. And that's good if you're in a supportive relationship and, yeah. and you get that feedback, but immediately my mind dumped over to you know the gaslighters who say oh you're not actually hurt there's nothing really wrong with you this didn't mm-hmm. really affect you're you being a, you're being a snowflake yeah <laughs> and i and i totally understand that because i've gotten that when i try to correct people on saying you know that that language that i spoke of earlier where um people don't understand how much it actually hurts other people to do that and and it's such a disregard for other people's feelings when you're when you're called out on something and and the other person is like, oh, it was just a joke or whatever. Like, don't get so offended. It doesn't hurt you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that because I've tried and I have not. There been must successful. be some way where we're, yeah, some point in our upbringing, we must be learning that that's an appropriate response. Like, that that is a way to return things to a normal equilibrium is to just pretend that it's not an issue and downplay people who claim that it is an issue. I just, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where that point is when we're taught that and, you know, how to change it and get rid of it. But I think even calling out and let's say someone was being defensive. I mean, you've now at least instilled um, a seed of doubt in their minds of, is, is, is this actually something I should be doing? Yeah, that- at least I feel like, I feel like if, if, if someone called me out and I had that response, I, it would like at least seed something in my mind that, Maybe I should actually like re-examine this yeah. because someone that has like called me out on it. I like that idea of of the seed being planted because now this is a kind of an off tangential uh, example that I can think of. But when I get critical feedback on a paper that I write in school, the initial reaction is always, "Ah, you don't know what you're talking about. This was a good paper." And then give it a day or so, and I'm much more receptive to to reading the comments and trying to incorporate the feedback than that first feeling of you're criticizing something that I did and I don't like it. Yeah, and I think also repetition, too. 
So like if you got that same feedback multiple times, then you would be like, oh, this must be a thing that I'm doing that I should change instead of continuing to write my papers the same way. So I think Mm -hmm. that like we need to, as white people, kind of band together and say we are all going to call this out when we see it so that people can have that repetition. Mm -hmm. That's a good Mm -hmm. point. Well, you know, we mentioned kind of the eco... Uh, or sorry, the uh, echo chamber. Um, I feel like there are some communities that I'll just call it out: the Fox News community <laughs> <laughs> that that likely aren't really going to be changing. And uh, when I think about kind of white fragility, uh, the, the first face that came to my mind was Tucker Carlson, which is a Fox news in quotation news uh opinion show and he seems to be like the most fragile person ever (laughs) when it comes to anything regarding um white racism white supremacy and the, the reason why i brought him up is just recently he's been talking about talking about voter rights oh no and everything he talked about really just sounded like it's really about white supremacy, <laughs> even though he framed it as uh, a voter rights issue. So he's been uh, talking about, I, I think it's better if I just quote him, uh, that, that might um, be easier. So this is his quote, if you change the population, you dilute the political power of the people who live here, here being in the U.S., So every time they import new voters, I become disenfranchised as a current voter. So how I'm reading this is basically he doesn't want more people of color voting because it dilutes the white vote. (laughs) And somehow he is very, very upset at this, that uh, we are importing more people into the country or allowing more people to vote because that dilutes his vote. And all I'm reading into that is basically he doesn't want the overall white supremacy in North America to be diluted by non-white supremacists. Yeah, it's so interesting. He's starting from the assumption that those non-white voices that he does want to be disenfranchised are just automatically less valuable and less important than the white folk that currently exists. Yeah, there's this... this there's this like interconnect between um, uh, power uh, and this uh, fragility. I mean, in my mind, it's clear, you know, he loves having the power. He loves the fact that uh, white people have a very powerful say in government. And, you know, his middle America, where majority people are white, hold a lot of power in politics and the fact that things are changing and uh, these uh, white supremacist ideals are being dismantled. uh, He is very, very upset about it. I think America is very interesting in the way that it um, um, raises up this idea of the American dream where you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps if you just want it enough. So, like, I feel like he's the kind of person who would say, if these black people wanted more of a say at the table, they would take it. They would run for office, right? Um, Or if these people wanted to be rich, they would just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and get rich on their own. And, yeah, I, I just... I don't understand any but, of that. But yet, white people are the ones that hold them back. Like, yeah. Usually by gerrymandering and mm-hmm. uh, preventing, or Georgia's new law of not allowing anyone to give food and water to people waiting in line to vote. Yeah. So. Yeah, there was there was an activist last year named uh, Kimberly Jones who made a video around the time of George Floyd and... Uh, she equated uh, this systemic racism to monopoly. And so um, she was talking about how it's like white people have gotten like 400 rounds around the board and not allowed the black people to be participating to get any money or any properties. 
Um, so they have that for 400 years of slavery. And now, now they're like, okay, black people, you can play the monopoly game, but like, how are they supposed to win the game? You can't win the game. You'll just go broke because you'll keep landing on other people's properties. So we've taken, so, I mean, and I think we really, we really talked about this during reparations, the podcast that we did on reparations, but like when you take everything away from from these people and then say, oh yeah, now you can join us. It's, it's not that easy, right? We have all these rules in place that are going to keep these people down. Um, and so saying like, oh, you can pull yourself up is not, is not realistic. And I think that's kind of what Tucker, he really believes that, that, you know, your vote could matter, if you went and voted, but uh, you don't vote. So, yeah, like, it's just yeah. it's just ridiculous. And, and he's he's not racist for that because, you know, it's up to the black community to, you know, pick pick themselves up and yeah. <laughs> succeed in life. It always well, gets Fox me these, these guys who seem to like fervently believe that meritocracy already exists and that it's just functioning perfectly. After mm-hmm. all, everything worked out so well for them. So mm-hmm. must be the result of hard work and dedication. Quality of character got them where they are. Yeah. Even though he was born into a wealthy family <laughs> and never had to worry about, you know, finding food or, or housing. Paying rent, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. an amazing How- disconnect. <laughs> <laughs> How long has he been at Fox, Tucker Carlson? Do you know? I have no idea. Many, many years. Okay, so he's, but, he's know, been before, there a long time. Yeah, but before Fox, I mean, he used to be on uh, CNN, um, and where he really found his footing of um, being the right-wing talking head mm-hmm. for CNN. And, and the moment he kind of found his footing, found his audience, I mean, that's why white supremacists love him, even though he claims he's not a white supremacist but ultimately it doesn't matter if he claims he's not a white supremacist white supremacists still love him mm-hmm. yeah so they it's must funny. be saying something we have this idea that white supremacists are like kkk they're wearing the white hoods and going to these meetings and things but white supremacists actually are just people who hold these racist beliefs um mm-hmm. and who are risen up uh and hold each other up you know, by these beliefs. Yeah. And so, so he thinks he just can't be one. And these, these people think they just can't be white supremacists, but they don't, they don't understand the definition of it. It's yeah. 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 Do you guys think there's a connection between kind of this uh, fragility and the domestic terrorism that's happening in the U S there's a lot of these Mm. uh, domestic terrorists that feel disenfranchised and, Almost. For whatever reason, have almost certainly taking, yeah, taking up guns because I don't know why. <laughs> it's just like, well, a hundred percent. Yeah, you get even even in issues that are not race based. It's like the uh, whatever they call them, the incels. Is that what they're called? The the men who can't get a date with women. Yeah, and and, and so they end up, then attack women because they feel threatened by them. It's this weird um, thing where they believe that as you know a white male, they should be getting all of these privileges, and so when they don't then they have to attack. And it's the same thing with race. It's absolutely connected. Isn't it funny the way, you know, the quiet people who in, enjoy the, the structural racism of society and like to pretend it doesn't exist. Whenever an extreme case like a, a mosque shooting happens, all of a sudden they, they try to create a disconnect. Like, oh, that that's a totally different thing. That's on a completely different level. It's not at all related to the common values and norms in society. It's, I don't know where that came from. Those people are crazy. Yeah. Tucker Carlson is, is pretty, <laughs> pretty wild too. I can't believe people watch yeah. him. Like, I don't know how you can watch him and not be like, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there are millions of Americans that really love his show. So that to me tells you there are millions of Americans who hold very similar perspectives, right? Yep. 
And, you know, in, in his defense, he's like what, one of the few Fox News anchors who hasn't gone down in flames for sexual harassment yet. So good job, Tucker. <laughs> uh, who knows? Yeah. I mean, he, he, he was friends with Matt Gates. So. <laughs> Plenty of time left for the skeletons to come out of the closet. Oh, I'm sure there's lots. Mm-hmm. You would think those QAnon people who thought that Q was trying to hunt down these pedophiles should like look towards the conservative right, where all these gross <laughs> uh, incidences have been occurring. You would think. I feel like this might be the the right time for me to to interject my bit about how I I always want to see the conversation move in a in a productive direction. You mentioned all the the less productive stuff. Like I, I saw a lot of online comments that uh, indicate young males would rather make the conversation about political correctness than address any of the problems. Like I watched a, a YouTube video of Robin D'Angelo on Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, and then I did the the crazy thing. I started scrolling down through the comments, and oh my, never there go was, in the comments, Rory. Oh, there no. was not a single one that was focused on you know, dealing with her ideas, they were all focused on attacking her and defending themselves personally and accusing what was her the of... like to dislike ratio. Like Oh I, like... I should have checked that. I, I didn't actually uh look at that. They were accusing uh Fallon of basically being spineless because he wasn't standing up to her. They were accusing her of reverse gaslighting them because she was making them feel like they might be racist. So <laughs> <laughs> It was wow. it was not constructive at all. Do you think that had anything? I I don't mean to make this like a gender issue. Do you think that had anything to do with her being a woman as well? It could certainly have played a role. I, I'm just yeah. I was just thinking like yeah, because she's a woman, they wouldn't you know they would focus on other things versus her actual arguments that she's making. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just I quickly looked up the uh like to dislike ratio. All right, what is it? <laughs> the liked is 3.5 Oh no. 000. Okay. The dislike 26,000. Oh, <laughs> Significantly oh, no. more dislike. <laughs> oh or, no. On, yeah. on its way to 10 times more. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Online commenters. To be honest, I am not surprised by that number. <laughs> Me either, if I'm if I'm really being frank with myself. Maybe it's a good time to talk about some of the other people of of that ilk, like the the ones who call out for all lives matter when they see Black Lives Matter, or the ones who call for a white history month when they see Black History Month is being celebrated. Or a straight pride parade. Or the straight pride parade. That was in Boston, right? Yeah, I think so. Or <laughs> some alt-right organizers were, were feeling threatened by gay pride and just completely oblivious to the fact that the mainstream is their straight pride parade and they don't need... Uh, but. Here's another example that's uh, that's a fun one that's come up in conversations I've had. It's when a traditionally white fictional character, like a James Bond or something, is in talks to be played by a person of color. And you get everybody who's a, a traditionalist saying, how dare you try to, to race swap this beloved character who has always been white and imagine them as something other than white. That's so offensive. You know, what do you guys take on on that uh, particular group? It's a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> I think the key word here is fictional. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> I, I'm totally with you. Some of the examples were James Bond, Hermione Granger, and uh, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz were all in talks to be played by a person other than a white person. And the backlash, the outrage. I think there was a one for Spider Man as well in the in the new movies because Mary Jane isn't uh, isn't whitey white in that uh, yeah in that new film these series. Are all, these are not historical accounts. <laughs> this is not a documentary. I, I I would, for example, I think it would be odd if let's say they had a documentary or a story about 
I don't know, Einstein, and then they had a black person play Einstein. That might seem a little weird because it's maybe historical, but... Um, but Hamilton did it, where they changed the races of all of the people involved. Yeah, I like, to be honest, I don't see any problem with it. Mm. It, it just seems weird, but <laughs> I, I don't think... It, it just doesn't matter. Like, in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter? Yeah. I don't really think so. I can I can see that where with a historical figure it's it's kind of odd but it's not offensive I wouldn't think clearly some people disagree with me but we have such an issue in our society of um of valuing the white gaze almost so making characters white and not making them diverse just because we think it should be that way when it doesn't really have to be that way and it it really shouldn't we should have more diversity we should have people represented in in the culture but um because we are a white dominated culture um we often elevate the white people uh in our stories and in our media and things like that yeah i've seen a lot of those those comments as well um the one that came to mind for me was uh the little mermaid um, they oh. were going to cast a black uh, person. I don't think they ever got to making it, but they were in talks about having sort of a live action with uh, a black person as the lead. And I thought that was great. Why does it have to be a white mermaid? You know, these um, Caucasian white stories that we have come up with about mermaids and whatever. Why can't they be black people? Why do they have to be white people? It doesn't. Yeah. Why did why, why does it matter? <laughs> Well, because, Sherry, you're subtracting and erasing white people from from the narrative. <laughs> and they, they're just being erased completely. Yeah. Not going to have any space left. The Little Mermaid it's has Tucker, to be a white girl. <laughs> Gotta be white. It's Tucker Carlson's great replacement theory. That's, that's what he Oh, he actually about. has a theory on it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he named it the, the replacement theory. <laughs> he has like, a oh, lot of black theories. <laughs> Weird, of course weird he theories. Did. Gosh, that man. Yeah. I feel like the only best description of him is like the sentient enema. And that's a joke from Veep. He's just a walking, talking, sentient em- enema. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So anyways, uh, returning to, to constructive conversations, I, I think that one of the important things to acknowledge when trying to get people on board is, you know, help people understand that being white means that they, they benefit from the status quo and the state of a white racial equilibrium, or at least they aren't being held back because of their skin color. And so. That's a hard argument to make though, to try and get some people to believe that they are benefiting from something because people are like, well, I'm not rich. I'm not benefiting from this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a problem I don't have a definite solution to. Like, how do you get people on board with progressive change and not feel like something's being subtracted from an advantage they have? And it's an especially hard sell when, like you said, Sherry, they're, they're someone who, despite having some structural privileges, they're still toiling away at some shitty job with low pay and they, they feel like the whole world is already against them. And now you want to put one more thing on. It just, it seems like a tough sell but i i I think it's like over time um it's trying to communicate to people that it's not just about money right it's not just about being privileged and rich it's about you know when you're in the when you're going shopping you're not followed in Mm -hmm. the mall because they you're uh, immediately tagged as a potential thief you're not randomly stopped by the police and things like that i think that's still a hard argument to make because um, the white people don't really see it. Like when I go to the mall, I don't really see it because I'm not looking you for it. You don't experience it. Yeah. Right? And, and maybe I, if I'm there alone and going shopping, I'm not being followed. So I don't think it happens as a white person, right? Like that would be the argument that they would make is that you don't see it. So it doesn't happen. Um, and so I think, I think it's still a really difficult argument to make. And I guess you can point to, voices that say yes it does happen but like 
then they might be like, where's the proof? And I, yeah, I don't know. Do you think the answer might lie in like tighter community bonds, like making it harder for somebody to, to say that doesn't affect me and, and go about their day? Like, how do you make it personal for someone when somebody in their community who is a racial minority is being attacked or oppressed in some way? How do you make it feel like they are being attacked by that oppression? I think a lot of it has to do with personal relationships. I'm, you're really not going to fully understand the pain and the challenges until you have a personal connection to it. Mm-hmm. And when you think about, I, I think when you think about, and that's where one of the bigger struggles is, right? It goes back to one of the earlier comments of people always uh, replying, oh, but I have black friends, but do you really have a multicultural mix of friends? I think there's, uh, when you look at um, kind of the composite of um, uh, your your friendships, you know, it's often not really fully multicultural and it's sometimes not easy to kind of understand the various uh, struggles from different cultures and different races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking along the same lines of, you know, more interpersonal relationships but even even in that, I, I feel like there's there's people who stand by and don't recognize even when their friend right next to them is receiving differential treatment from what they're receiving. It just goes over their head because they they're, they're just not aware of uh, how certain, for example, phrases or certain actions are being taken uh, against a friend. Like it's not noticeable. Mm-hmm. But then there's the opposite of that uh, as well. Like, remember the movie Get Out when when the hyper-aware girlfriend, before she revealed herself to be the villain of the film, was chastising the the police officers who pulled them over and uh, demanded to see the protagonist's license instead of hers, even though she was driving. You know, she gives the the hyper-woke response and she goes after them. And is that the right response? Or is that... uh, helping the situation i don't remember that movie other than <laughs> because of that movie i feel like can't trust any of those <laughs> rich white people <laughs> well i i guess it just it'd be hard for us to to comment on it you know me especially being the token white male of this situation on how that would make uh the racial minority person feel to have you know the white defender come up and champion their cause for them and, and give the, the ultra strong pushback that may or may not reflect what they're feeling. Yeah. It's such a tough situation. I don't know if we can have any answers here of like, this is what you should do or yeah. Cause, cause in that situation, I think about definitely about that, that black person sitting in the car with her of like, he doesn't his voice is not amplified and she's just speaking on behalf of him so yeah yeah is that the right way to use your white privilege though to be the champion of of that person's cause i i don't know i think at a minimum um it's really the the most important thing is to reevaluate your own life i mean you're ultimately responsible for yourself and um, and, you know, for, for me, even though I'm a person of color, you know, I have to reexamine uh, potential like bias, unconscious bias uh, uh, against different genders and sex. And I think for um, the white community, I also have to kind of reflect on kind of uh, potential privilege that comes along with um, your race. Mm-hmm. So I think at a minimum, it's, Gotta, you gotta fix yourself. <laughs> that, that's the, the the first step. I agree. I just want to shoehorn in a a quote that I saw that I thought was really impactful, which is uh, directly speaking to white fragility, and that the discomfort of the conversation is not equivalent to the kinds of violence that are going on in the world, which we're responsible for as community members and allies and citizens. I found that slightly inspiring too you know, frame it as being allies and community members as opposed to attacked persons who possess privilege and are having something subtracted from them. Yeah. And, you know, I, we're not going to be able to 
solve these societal ills in I feel like in our generation. <laughs> I mean, it, it it this is gonna take many decades, uh, but ultimately we're on a, on this journey. We we kind of need to um, uh, do our best, and yeah, that. So that's think, all I got. That's all we can do. I think we need to impact the next generation, though, and teach them to be more accepting of criticism um, and sort of say, thank you for informing me about this. And then and then encourage them to take a deeper look at these um, systemic systems that we've set up. Totally agree. So training people to have the Sher- right response. Yeah. Sherry, I... I will let you do that because I don't plan on having children, but since you're a teacher, you can, <laughs> you shall cast that education. That's your them. responsibility, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll take that on. <laughs> I'll do my best. I think we can wrap up. So that's all I got. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, we'll you guys then all right see ya talk to you later i think we lost sherry i think so too can you hear us i can still hear you kenny okay although you seem to be freeze framed you're not moving anymore and sherry's just gone Maybe I'm just sitting very, very still. <laughs> you're like Guardians of the Galaxy, man. <laughs> Sherry, you're on mute. Uh, yeah, you're still muted, Sherry. I got kicked out there. <laughs>